these brothers are going to make their way to the back. They have Bibles to distribute. If you get their attention, they'll give you one of those. It is indeed a gift, so keep that. Bring it back with you each Lord's Day. As we look at God's Word together, it's marked for you as well at the passage we'll be considering in Psalm 51. Now, you should have received an outline for the message when you came in, and I need to point out a couple of things about it. You'll notice that the first major point is in gray because we covered that point three weeks ago. The following week, two weeks ago, our service was devoted to the observance of the Lord's table. So this outline was printed for this past Sunday, but I was sick. We had a guest speaker, and so we're just now getting back to it. And that explains why the date on that outline, if you look at the lower right-hand corner, is 11-12 for the three of you who keep track of such things. Now, since it's been three weeks, a quick reminder is necessary of the context, both the wide and the narrow context of this passage. The wide context is that Psalm 51 is the second, it's contained within the second of five books that comprise the overall collection of 150 psalms. So I've shown you this slide a few times as we go through our series together, that there are these five books, and those are the chapters that correspond to each. You can see that Psalm 51, then, is within book number two. And the psalms are set to, uh, are poetry that's set to song. And they are each movements in a five-part cantata, with each having a purpose that moves toward a finale of praise in the final third of the entire 150 psalms. Now, one of the differences between the first movement, book one, and the second in book two is that most of the psalms, one through 41, are about individual persons, and these are collective peoples in book two. Both of them lament the prosperity of the wicked, but in book one, it's wicked individuals, in book two, it's wicked nations. And you see that move from individuals to nations partly, as I said three weeks ago, in a different name for God. In the first book, I pointed out in prior sermons that the personal name Yahweh translated LORD, all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, is used. And now in these Psalms, it's the Hebrew name Elohim translated God, the generic title that's often used to refer to the true God of Israel, but it was also one that other nations would have used as well. The early Psalms in this movement, in book two, speak of the wicked nations coming under the rule of the God of Israel. And so Psalm 46 says, nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall, he lifts his voice, the earth melts. The next psalm says, He subdued nations under us, peoples under our feet. The next, Psalm 48, The city of our God, His holy mountain, is beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth. The city of the great King, God is in her citadels. He has shown Himself to be her fortress. When the kings joined forces, when they advanced together, they saw her and were astounded. They fled in terror. The next Psalm, 49, is a summons to the nations. It says, hear this, all you peoples, listen, all who live in this world. And in the next Psalm, God's collective people are called to Him. 
this consecrated people who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And in response to this call, God's anointed king himself, King David, confesses his sin and he submits his rule to the Lord's rule in Psalm 51 that Pastor Larry read just a bit ago. And then in Psalm 52, even the king of a pagan nation responds to God's call. Now that's the, the wide context, because, and, but there's a, a narrow context for Psalm 51 as well. And that's what we covered uh, three weeks ago under the first point in your outline. You see, that's the one that's in gray, if you can still read that, it's, you know, light font, but it says, reconciliation with God and others begins with confrontation, sometimes from a friend, but always with the truth. And we covered it that way because of what is said in the superscription of this psalm. The superscription is that stuff up at the top before the very first verse. And it says there at the top of the psalm, it's a psalm of David. When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Now, we covered that in part one, covering the psalm, and the recording of that, like all of our recordings, is available on our website. Now, while this is the confession of a king, and the sin is of a particularly heinous nature, it nevertheless provides a model confession for each of us to emulate, and this morning we're going to see how that is. We'll spend most of our time in the first six verses and then only summarize the rest, but I hope it will be helpful to each of us in our walk with the Lord. So let's pray now and ask the Lord to help us. Father, we thank you that we are able to be here. We thank you because you're the one who makes all things possible. Thank you for giving us the desire to be among your people, to sing your praises, to give back to you as you have given to us, and then to learn of you in your word. Thank you for giving us the health particularly with all that is going around right now. We ask you to be with our brothers and sisters who are recovering. We look forward to seeing them soon. We ask you, Lord, to grant us focus now and open our hearts to change so that we leave this place better equipped than we came to bring glory to you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I say in that outline, again, reconciliation with God and others begins, as we saw three weeks ago, with confrontation, and then... It remembers God's compassion. Verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. So when, not if we sin, it creates a spiritual breach that must be repaired. And that requires that we go to those affected by our sin Always among them, and most important, is the Lord Himself. Now, I'll mention that breach in just a bit that's created uh, when we get to the end of our message, that it's not an eternal breach. But nevertheless, it does affect our fellowship and our intimacy with God. But on what basis do sinners approach an absolutely holy God? If all you know of Him is fire and brimstone, like you are Dorothy trembling before the great Oz who's behind the curtain, you'll be too frightened to approach. Your impulse will be to run away and not to deal with it. And failure to deal with it multiplies our problems. As King David told us, 
back in Psalm number 32. He says there, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Many physical and psychological problems are the result of unreconciled sin. And so counseling that fails to deal with sin can therefore go only so far in the healing process. Thankfully, David did not remain in the state that's described in those verses because he goes on in Psalm 32 to say this, Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So what happened between the time when he was wasting away and he felt the heavy hand of conviction upon him? And then he comes to the Lord and receives forgiveness. Well, God sent the prophet Nathan to confront him and to motivate him to stop the cover-up and to go to God. And thankfully, David's response was this. 2 Samuel 12 tells us, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, I would suggest to you that David's change of heart was due in large part to God's dealings with him including the severe consequences that David suffered, and especially sending Nathan to confront him. It was a sign of God's love that he went after his erring child. Jesus told this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and he loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. And Jesus applied it this way, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not, and I can accurately add the word, who do not think they need to repent. Now, Jesus said that about a thousand years after David lived, but David had been taught the same heart of God for his people because God had said to Moses 500 years before David's time. The Bible says, The Lord said, I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. Now, I remind you, as we have seen in a number of contexts over the months and years, that the name of the Lord in Scripture often has to do with God's nature, His character. And so immediately after saying that to Moses, God adds this, The Lord said, I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. And then He says, that means I will have mercy, on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion, on whom I will have compassion. My name, my character, my, my nature has as chief among its attributes that I am merciful, and that I am compassionate. And in the next chapter, the Lord proclaims His name, His character before Moses, saying this, The Lord proclaimed His name, the Lord, and He passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, again, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. So, 
I ask you, as I ask myself, what do you know about God's compassion for sinners? Do you know God to be compassionate to sinners? Well, if you have come to Christ, you've done so because you learned and you believed that He came for you. He came and He lived for you and He died for you and then came after you by His Spirit and He chased you down, as it were, to convict you and turn you to the one who alone could reconcile you to God. And now still His love compels Him to, in the words of the poet, play the, quote, hound of heaven as He confronts and convicts and disciplines all and always to bring us back Because he is indeed what verse 1 says. He is merciful. He has unfailing love. And he's motivated by great compassion for his people. So you have to remember that. You have to believe that. You have to know that. And if you do, then you will be motivated to go to that kind of God to confess your sin. What do those terms mean that he's merciful, that he has this unfailing love, that he's compassionate? Mercy signifies undeserved or unmerited favor. The guilty sinner deserves death. And the penitent, the one who comes to him, knows this, and so the prayer is for God's gracious forgiveness. Now, by the way, in the case of David, he had committed two sins, adultery and murder, for which death was the inevitable penalty, heightening all the more his understanding of being undeserving of God's favor. And then verse 1 tells us he has this unfailing love. It's the Hebrew word hesed. This is the, the covenant word describing the Lord's faithful love. It's used some 250 times in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, and it describes the basis for God's relationship with His people. He loves us and so will not forsake us even when we sin. And we see this in the passage that I've asked to have left on the screen for just a bit. Because that passage that I read earlier has this Hebrew word hesed twice, abounding in love, maintaining love. And this was said by the Lord, now get this, shortly after His people have committed the grossest idolatry, idolatry by worshiping and sacrificing to a golden calf. And it's after that that God says this about his relationship with his people. The point is that the psalmist was basing his appeal for forgiveness on the covenant relationship that he had with the Lord, one that God was faithful to keep because of his love for his people. And then we're told he is compassionate. This stresses the feeling that one has for someone who is helpless and dependent as a mother's feeling for a child in her womb. So, friends, we do not come to God on the basis of our character, but rather on the basis of His. We don't come to God and say, here I am, here's my spiritual resume. Here's what I've done to meet up to your standards. And then after we have initially come to Him, we continue to come to Him because we know God. And what we know of God should move us toward Him when we sin, not away from Him, as we so often do. 
only then to allow things to steamroll and make matters worse. In verses 1 and 2, there are three words used for moral offense. The same three that were used back in Psalm number 32 when David described his attempt to cover up his transgressions, he called it, his iniquity, his sin. And we have those in verses 1 and 2 here again. And the word transgressions means rebellious acts. It was used in military context to describe open and intentional rebellions. The use of the word name sin for what it is, it's willful rebellion against God. And the form is transgressions, it's plural, because sin was compounded upon sin and often is in our own lives. Iniquity in verse 2 has to do with going astray, and so it refers to departing from the standard or departing from the way. And then the word for sin means to miss a goal or to miss the road, miss the way, so that sin is missing the mark. And the mark, the standard, is the very law of God. So what's to be done with this? Verse 2. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And he's asking that this be blotted out at the end of verse 1 and washed and that he be cleansed. Now these same requests are made in verses 7 and 9 and so I'll explain those when we get to those a bit later. So friends, when we initially came to Christ for salvation, we did so because we believed that He loved us enough to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And now as we walk with Him and we grow in Him, we need to remember He still loves us and He's still eternally committed to us. And it's on that basis that we continually come to Him to repair the breach that our sin makes. And that's why John the Apostle wrote in his first letter of 1 John famously, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. As I said earlier, this breach that sin makes for those who belong to Christ, that are God's children, is not a a breach of relationship. We remain His children, but rather it is a breach of fellowship. And 1 John 1 is written to Christians. And it's saying, in order to repair that breach in our intimacy, our fellowship with God, we need to go to Him with our sin and confess it. Just as David did in Psalm 51, we come because of His character. Notice what it says there. If we confess our sins, He will forgive us our sins and purify us, but notice why. Because of His character. He's faithful. And He's just. And therefore, he does this. So just like David had to remember the compassionate God, the merciful God, the unfailing love of God, when we come to him, let's remember his attributes, who he is, what his character is. And he's faithful. He's faithful to his people. He keeps his promises. He says to us, if we come to him, then he will meet us. Draw near to me, the Lord says. If we do that, He is faithful to keep those those promises. And He is just. Meaning that the price of our sin has been met by the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross and God's justice has been appeased. 
That being the case, when his children then, who have a relationship with him, and they have that justice applied to them because of the cross of Christ, when we come to him as those forgiven children, his justice then requires that renewed intimacy and closeness of fellowship is the result. So reconciliation with God and others begins, as we saw three weeks ago, with confrontation. And then it remembers God's compassion. And then, in your outline, results in confession. Verse 3, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Now that verse begins with the word for, or because. So I'm asking you to do this, Lord, for, because. The reason I need this blotting and this washing and this cleansing is because of three things that are explained in verses 3 through 6. These three things are not in your outline, so for those of you who take notes, find a spot. But he says in those verses, the sin needs to be blotted and washed and cleansed because first, I know it's pain. I'll explain each of these, but I know it's pain. And secondly, I know it's nature. And thirdly, I know it's source. I know it's pain. I know it's nature. I know it's source. Verse 3, I know the pain of my sin because it is ever before me, David said. That is, it's always on my mind. <laughs> it's weighing me down. As David said in Psalm 32 of this situation that we saw earlier, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And so I have the constant personal pain of my sin. And therefore, I need this from you, God. I'm coming to you for this. And I not only know it's pain, I know it's nature. Verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. This displays, saying this, displays an, an amazing God awareness, a God-centeredness. Because he says it's against you only that I have done these things, but the truth is, David had sinned against Bathsheba. David had sinned against her now-dead husband, Uriah. He had sinned against the entire nation as their king. And yet, ultimately, it's about his offense against God. One Old Testament scholar has helpfully pointed out that all sin, by its very definition, is against God. Since it's only by God's law that sin is defined as sin. I mean, think about it. A wrong done to our neighbor is an offense against humanity. In the eyes of the state, which measures wrongs by its own laws, that wrong might be a crime. But only before God is it a sin. And second, it is only because God is in the picture that even a wrong that's done to our neighbor is in fact wrong. 
It is because our neighbor is made in God's image and is endowed with rights by God that it's wrong to harm him or her. The scholar J.J. Stuart Perrone writes, All wrong done to our neighbor is wrong done to one created in the image of God. All tempting of our neighbor to evil is taking the part of Satan against God. And so, far as in us lies, defeating God's good purpose of grace toward him. All wounding of another, whether in person or property, in body or soul, is a sin against the goodness of God, end quote. And only when a person sees that is he or she ready to acknowledge what the end of verse 4 says. So you are right in your verdict, and you are justified when you judge. David knows the personal spiritual pain of his sin. He knows its nature and how deep it goes. But he goes even further still. He's keenly aware of its source. Verse 5. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. There is much talk today about whether people are born that way. And it relates to, very often that question of being born that way relates to one's sexual proclivities. And we've talked about that in our second hour series that will continue today, God's design for sexuality, and we will some more. But the truth is we're all born that way in the sense that the Bible teaches original sin. That we were so perfectly represented by our forefather Adam that we share his responsibility for sin entering God's world and we acquire Adam's nature when we are conceived. We chose this in Adam. So that here David is not blaming his mother for his sin. Rather, David is confessing his sin. He's taking full responsibility for it. He's confessing that there was never a moment in his existence when he was not a sinner. As one commentator says, he lays on himself the blame of a tainted nature instead of that of just a single fault. Now the way that verse 6 is translated in the latest edition of the New International Version is, I must tell you, is really incomprehensible to me both in its meaning and in the reason that they changed it from their prior translation. It currently reads this, verse 6. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. So God wanted faithfulness from me in the womb and even taught me wisdom there. Okay, I guess we could say He desired faithfulness even when we were conceived as opposed to the sinfulness that we are at conception, but I still don't know what teaching wisdom in the womb is. So it's incomprehensible to me that way, and I also don't understand why they departed from what pretty much every other translation does, the New American Standard, the English Standard Version, and even their own translation in the prior edition said this, Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. And that makes perfect grammatical sense in Hebrew, and it makes sense in this context. 
since we're conceived with a sin nature, what God desires is that we be changed then at the root level in our nature, in the inner parts, in the inmost place. What we need is heart surgery. We need a transplant from a sinful heart to one that desires righteousness. Outward change will not do since our problem is an inside job. And David recognizes all of this about himself as it relates to his sin and therefore how that relates him to his God. David makes a clean, clear confession. The word confession in Scripture means to say the same thing. That is, confession is saying the same thing about our sin that God says about it. And David does that. He says the same thing about sin that God does. Now, it's extremely important to notice that the way David was viewing his sin was not first its circumstantial consequences, but rather its personal truths. That is, although this sin cost him, David, it cost him a son. And although he'll later in this psalm refer to what it might mean for his leadership, and undoubtedly it caused great personal embarrassment and family strife, the most important and foundational issue is David's sin. David's personal sin. David personally, coram Deo, in the presence of God. David's immediate response to correction sent by God through the prophet Nathan, even though it was of great cost to him personally to admit this and have it publicized, that showed that although Sin identified a hard place in his heart to be sure that much of that heart that David had had been previously cultivated spiritually over time so that ultimately God matters most and what God says resonated within David. One of the reasons so many of us have been so miserable in our relationships for so long is because we have focused on our relationships. We're focused on what's going on and how the other person is doing or what they're not doing. And we're failing to cultivate our heart for the Lord. Charles Spurgeon asked, Why is it that some Christians, although they hear many sermons, make but slow advances in the divine life? He says, Because they neglect their closets, that is their, their private life and cultivating that spiritual life, and they do not thoughtfully meditate on God's work. And as a pastor for over 30 years now, my observation is that he is exactly right. 
People come to church, come to churches like this, hear sermons over and over and over. Take communion as we did two weeks ago, as if all is okay, but nothing changes. There's not a cultivation of the inner life. Spurgeon said this, there will be three effects of nearness to Jesus. Humility, happiness, and holiness. The only way that one will confess the only way that one will focus on themselves and not others is if they are first focused on God. And that, in turn, generates the humility to acknowledge the truth about ourselves. Humility before God is paramount in the life of a growing Christian. To humble yourself and see yourself as God sees you and say, confess what God says about it. C.S. Lewis said of this humility, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be always telling you that of course he's a nobody. Probably all you'll think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap. Lewis was British who took a real interest in you, what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. And that is a big step, too. At least, nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. And because that is true, because that is right, I have found that counseling so often is one person telling me how good they are in comparison to how very bad someone else is. And then my job is to say, hey, let's talk about you. You'll never, ever be at peace with the Lord or with others until you have a heart that is humble before Him and therefore can truly confess. In fact, notice verse 16. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Is stuff messed up in your life? Start with your heart. See yourself in comparison, not to the other person. See yourself in comparison as David did to the Holy God. And then bring that contrite and humble heart to Him and do what David did in the remaining portions of this psalm. 
So I say reconciliation begins with confrontation. It remembers God's compassion and so results then in confession. And finally, it requests consecration. Now I say it requests consecration rather than just it consecrates, the person consecrates themselves to, to God. We request this con, cons, consecration because it's God's grace that gets it done. The truth of the matter, there are no works in your life, even after you come to Christ, that are worthy of the name of Christ that are not empowered by Christ. And so we ask Him, we request that He now, having confessed, Lord, now consecrate me, moving forward. Verse 7. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquity. One preacher says of these words, cleanse and wash and blot out, that we saw earlier in verses 1 and 2. Cleanse means purge. It's based on the word for, Hebrew word for sin, and literally means, de-sin me. <laughs> David wanted to have his sin completely purged away. He did not want to retain even a stain of it. Wash refers to the washings that were found in the law. Centuries later, the prophet Isaiah would write, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. David wanted to be washed until he was as clean as that. And then blot out refers to removing writing from a book, perhaps removing an indictment. Verse 10, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Now many have read that verse, verse 11, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. To mean that it was possible perhaps for David, and thus for us, to lose our salvation, to have a relationship with God, but then the covenant be broken somehow between us and, and God. But this does not refer to losing salvation. But rather, what David is saying when he says, do not remove, take your Holy Spirit from me, he's referring to something that had happened years earlier when he became the king. When he became the king... Something called the theocratic anointing was given to him. We're going to read for, uh, about it from the book of 1 Samuel in a moment. But when he was inaugurated as king, he had oil poured over him to symbolize the Holy Spirit. And he was given, empowered the Holy Spirit to carry out his task of being the king of the nation. That's why it's called the theocracy, the government the government of God in the hands of the king, and it's an anointing to do that, the theocratic anointing. And here's what 1 Samuel 16 says, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. David is saying, I have sinned against you, God. I've sinned against the nation. I ask you not to remove me as king. I ask you to allow me to carry on despite my own failings. 
And verse 12, to restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. This ongoing consecration that David sought shows that his confession and his seeking forgiveness was not transactional, but rather transformational. It made a change and sustained change that benefited others. And we'll see in just a moment some of those others who were benefited and how. And then we'll be done shortly. But I say this was not transactional, but was rather transformational. You see, one of the things we do, guys and gals, friends, is we get caught in some sin, we get caught in some mess that's creating difficulties for us. We have to address it, we address it, but we do so in a transactional way. Yes, I acknowledged I did that, I'm sorry. Maybe we'll even go so far as to say, will you forgive me? And then we move on. But there's no transformation. Nothing changes. And so next week we do the same thing. Maybe even the next day we're doing the same thing. Well, I said I was sorry. And then we go through the whole routine again. So finally the other party just gives up. Now, we all struggle with sins of various types. I struggle with things that are different than you, you than me. And it may be that from day to day we struggle with something, from week to week. But if we are in relationship with others, then we need to acknowledge the hurt that that causes to them and make concrete changes that show at least incremental transformation so that we are moving forward and as a result, those who are attached to us are moving forward with us. And David desired to see that. He says in verse 13, I want to teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. I want my sin and confession and your forgiveness and restoration to be used as an instrument of righteousness in the lives of others. So how does that show up? Verse 14. At the end of verse 14, he says, my tongue will sing of your righteousness. At the end of verse 15, my mouth will declare your praise. In verse 18, may it please you to prosper Zion and build up the walls of Jerusalem. Prosper the community, the, the nation. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous. People won't be just going through the motions, but rather with this contrite and broken heart now, they bring their sacrifice. And indeed, you delight in that, in burnt offerings that are offered whole. And then bulls will be offered on your altar. In David's writing of Psalm 32, where he talked about all that he went through when he tried to hide his sin, and he made that public, and now we have it here 3,000 years later to read. And then now this, Psalm 51, are evidence of not only his confession, but his repentance. That David was determined by God's grace to move in a new direction, which is what repentance is. So here's your take-home truth. 
after three weeks. Sin separates, but God's grace restores. But only if you see the means of grace that God uses, a Nathan in your life to confront you with your sin. That restoration will only happen if you see it that way, that this is a good God doing a good thing in my life by coming after me because He loves me. And day by day, cultivating a heart for God so that it resonates with what God says when, not if, we go astray. Sin separates, but God's grace restores. We're going to bow in prayer and close in just a moment. You know, friends, it's possible to be a member of a Bible-believing and Bible-teaching church, show up for years, and not know Jesus. And so not have a heart that resonates. And so therefore, no transformation, no change. Same old, month to month, year to year. There may be someone here who has never come to Jesus even though they come to church. And so I remind you of what it means to come to Jesus. Realize, you're a sinner. Transgressions, iniquities, sin, all of that is you, that's me. Recognize what it took in order for your sin to be paid for. It took God himself to come to earth to do for you what you could not do. That death was preceded by his perfect life of righteousness. He offers that to you. But you don't just receive that and then take it for granted. (laughs) You repent of your sins. Lord, I've been going my way. I'm now going to go your way. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to read your book. By your grace, I'm going to do what it says. When I see that I fall short... I'm going to come to you and I'm going to confess. I'm going to seek your forgiveness. I'm going to repair the breaches that occur because of sin in my various relationships. You receive Jesus Christ into your life. And the things that I just said, friends, are just common Christian progress and sanctification. They're evidence that one has indeed had a time where they did this. And if that's not evidence in in your life, I'm not trying to unnecessarily scare, but because I love you, and more important, because God loves you, He has people like me say this to you. Make your calling and your election sure, the Apostle Peter said. Have you come to Jesus? Do you have spiritual life? Does it show up in your life? Would the people who know you say that you're a Christian walking with the Lord Jesus Christ? He offers himself to you in this sacred moment. We're going to bow and you open your heart to him. And you acknowledge your sin. And you ask him to rescue you, to save you from the penalty of that sin. You tell him and you commit to him, I'm going to go your way and not my way. By your grace, let's bow together.
Father, we thank you for the record of your servant, David. We thank you for the work you did, because this is all your work, in his heart, causing that heart to be cultivated over time, so that even though, like my heart and all of ours, there are still this side of heaven, hard, uncultivated places for which we are susceptible, as David certainly saw, that your words still resonated with him. And so he turned, he confessed, and he was thankful for your work in his life, hard though it was. Help me to be that way. Help us as your people to be that way. May we be, as your servant John Calvin said, involved in the race of repentance. The race that is the Christian life is one of repentance toward you forsaking on a regular basis those things, those attitudes, those words, and those actions that do not reflect your character, forsaking those and moving toward righteousness. Lord, this is what you desire and you deserve. And so I pray, Lord, that you would be saving some in this room right now, drawing them to yourself. Maybe even some who have, who have professed you for a long time but never possessed you. Lord, help us this week to run that race of repentance and serve you in a way that is more evident not only to us but to those around us so that we can be a testimony for you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together for our closing song.